Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scene Partners with Chris and Cody. I'm Cody, and that was Chris. That, okay. <laughs> One of these times we're going to start an episode, and it's not going to sound awkward. Yeah, you know, I think... It's really it, just who we in are. In hindsight, we could re-record that, but I it's feel like we've come so far. It's just the way it is. Yes. Yeah, it's just it's too far to go that way. So, Cody, what, what are we talking about today? Yeah, you know, I don't actually remember the broad topic, but I know that we're talk, talking about plagues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or pand- sorry, pandemic. I'm talking about plagues. We're talking about pandemics yes. and theater and how, you know, theaters survived during a pandemic. And mm-hmm. so kind of like a past and present situation. Yes. Yeah. You were, you were going to. I researched the wrong topic because. What was, what was your topic? Oh, I, uh, it's really not important. Mm. Well, so we're going to talk about, um, uh, I know one thing that made me um, interested in this topic is I was actually listening to another podcast, because let's face it, I mean, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this is because it's really all that we listen to. Yes. So, um, but I was listening to a podcast that was talking about plagues during um, during Shakespeare's time. And it was one of those things where I went to a, a, a school that was based in classical training and we did a lot of Shakespeare. It's what I did mostly in my professional career. And I never once thought about the fact that Shakespeare did his work, you know, surrounded by the bubonic plague or the blind <laughs> death or anything like that. And then just, I was talking to a friend of mine this morning or this morning. It wasn't this morning. Not that it would make any difference to you when I was talking to them, but that's not what it was. I don't want to, I just want to be, you know, completely honest. It was, it was about maybe three hours ago <laughs> on my way home. But, um, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Susan Felder, and she is, you know, probably the person outside of school that taught me the most about Shakespeare. She's absolutely brilliant. And, I wish that we could have her on the show. Maybe, you know, someday in the future, we'd be able to have her on to actually talk about um, all of these brilliant things that are in her mind. But we were talking about plagues in Shakespeare's time, and I had said how it just never occurred to me, and she kind of, I was going to say guffawed. <laughs> Is that, does that work? Yep. So she guffawed at me. Get those Is $5 that a, words Is in. that a, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know if that's in the... Dictionary is guffawed in the dictionary. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, don't, I don't. You're know, gonna want me maybe. to cut this, and I'm not. Uh, <laughs> 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 I didn't. I didn't know if it was just like a term. I, who knows? Um, so she guffawed at me, and then um, I felt, you know, basically my unintelligence wrapped me up like a warm yet cold blanket, <laughs> and um, I kind of had to. I, I kind of realized, you know so much of Shakespeare's play, uh, plays are based around these plagues. And it made mm. me really excited to do this show today. Yeah. So uh, did did she remind you of some stuff that you thought you knew, <laughs> but you didn't? Well, I mean, I had done some of my own research and I started thinking about it. But, you know, Shakespeare... So was, that's why you called her to find well, out. Well, I mean, like, it just so happened. The gaps. It just so happened that she called me it's today. very coincidental. We hadn't talked in a little while, but she called me today. Um... And we did talk about some stuff, but, you know, one interesting thing, when Shakespeare was born in Stratford, his parents, you know, the possibility of us not having Shakespeare in our lives is exponential. Yeah. Because when he was born, it was right in the middle of the bubonic plague um, in 1564. Um, So Shakespeare was born uh, 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon, and in the... In the uh, baptistry, the church, they actually, it was, it's like his name being baptized into the church, which is our record of knowing his birthday. Mm-hmm. And then basically the next line says something like, plague started today. <laughs> <laughs> and so his parents actually quarantined themselves, much like a lot of people did um, in what's going on right now. Um, they quarantined themselves in their house and stayed away from everybody and protected their brand new baby, yeah. essentially, from this in, insane sickness that, you know, back then people didn't really know what, you know, the sickness was from or they thought, you know, it might be evil spirits and those mm-hmm. kind of things. But they just, they quarantined themselves in their house. And it's really the only reason that we have Shakespeare. It's got to be. I mean, you know, there's the possibility of him not being around. Yeah. It's it's, it's crazy. 
when I heard that today, I was like, man, the possibilities. Like, what would life be like without, you know, for me personally? That would just be wild. But of course, you know, back then, information wasn't so widespread. Oh, yeah. And then I'm sure, much like today, misinformation was very easily Well, I'm sure that a lot of people got their information either like at the market or in church, you know, yeah, it would be probably the biggest place because it was where a lot of them would gather at a normal time and be talked to by, you know, a priest or Mm -hmm. someone else. Um, yeah. So, uh, one thing that I think was very interesting, I I looked up, uh, some of his plays. So, you know, Shakespeare's born at the time of a plague and then he is in London actually writing, and performing his works, and um, and then another plague hits. And so then we get the Black Plague, and they actually said one of the only things that saved Shakespeare, and this is probably speculation, this is just something that I read, that um, one of the things that saved Shakespeare is that he slept in the room where the fireplace was, mm. and that fleas, because you know the Black Plague came from fleas yeah. on the back of rats or whatever, um, that they it saved his life because he was in this room with the fire and the fleas didn't like the heat. I just thought that was crazy. It was like, there's no way that he could just. Right. (laughs) I think that's actually, uh, in, in history speculation as well, why the Pope at the time didn't die either because for the same reason. Oh yeah. Because he stayed quarantined in that room too with the fire and everything. Look at you fire keeping Shakespeare and the Pope alive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so that was a really cool thing that I read. Um, And then, you know, he wrote some plays that are a little dark in this time. Yeah. Um, And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, when they think of Shakespeare tragedies, they think about, you know, it's, it's all about death. I mean, pretty much everybody dies. Oh yeah. You look at Hamlet, (laughs) like everybody dies. Right. Romeo and Juliet, really, you know, everybody dies. Mm. Um, which was something that Susan and I were talking about on the phone. She was like, well, you know, Romeo and Juliet's written all around a plague. And then I had this, you know, this light bulb go off my brain. It's like, oh, right. How did I make it this far in life? <laughs> and not actually think about the fact that when this was written, they had, you know, the whole thing was that Romeo or that, that Juliet had sent this message and that it was going to Romeo and it was being delivered by Friar John. Yeah. And so the friar doesn't make it because he's actually quarantined because he was exposed to the plague. And so he was held up for two days. Which I'm like, how does that never, that has never occurred to me. Like, that is crazy. And and when we were talking about it, I realized it was just because the plague was never important to me. Mm. It's just not something that I ever had to really experience. So I was like, well, it's, it's probably whatever. That's just more information that's not applicable to me. Right. Yeah. But, um, so... I was researching some of those plays, and and one of them was uh, was King Lear, which is is probably the one that they you know they were doing King Lear, and it actually the theater got shut down in the middle of production, which a lot of people that we know are suffering from yeah. that situation right now. Um, it's one of those things. I guess you look to the past to right. and you see a lot of what's going on in the present. But we yeah, you look in the past. I mean, this was over four hundred years ago, or close to almost four hundred years ago. Um, so it's just, it's just wild that to think that they might've been going through some of the same, like the headspace that some of us are in anyway, about how to go forward as far as an artist. Um, so Shakespeare is putting on King Lear and they shut down the globe theater and they're not able to continue with production. And, um, what I, what I had researched, what I saw was that they had actually shut down the theater for over 14 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they shut down the theater for over 14 months whenever the cases got so bad that 30 people a week were dying. Holy smokes. Dude, that's huge for those, you know, the population back then. Yeah, when you think about it in comparison, when I first read it, I was like, I mean, didn't like 100 people in Florida die like last week from this? But then I started thinking about the actual population growth, you know, and yeah. that's a lot. I mean, of course, the disease and the control was not as big then, but... It shut down for 14 months, and of course that's why Shakespeare started touring. And you know, plagues were a very real thing back then. That's why they would leave the city to go and do their stuff um, outside of London. But so they're doing King Lear. When you actually look at the play of King Lear, you see in there that he has some references to plagues. It's very interesting because in Shakespeare's tragedies, no one ever dies of the plague because it's kind of a taboo thing. When you think about it, like it would be like making a joke 
or bringing up the fact, like maybe in 1986, bringing up something about AIDS, yeah. you know, when that was so prevalent, making a joke about that. People, it was so present and such a huge uh, crisis that that's just not something that you touch. And it was very similar then. So he has some insults in King Lear. Um, if you're not familiar with King Lear, not that I could possibly surmise the whole thing <laughs> in about like 10 <laughs> seconds, but if you're not familiar with it, there's, you know, you think of it this way, there's a king, the king is later on in life and he's looking at who he's going to divide his assets to. And he wants his daughters to tell him how much he loves them. And based off of how much they tell him that they love him is what he will give them. And so he has two girls that, you know, go on and they give him a lot of flowery language about how much they love him. And then he has his third daughter who says, you know, it is not in what I say, it is what I do. So I'm not going to say these things to you. And he's, he basically tells her, he's like, no, 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 you need to reconsider. You're going to have nothing. And he ends up disowning this last child, Cordelia. He ends up disowning Cordelia. And, um, and then throughout the play, his, he focuses so much on himself. And then, you know, people say that he has more, uh, it's, al- it's almost like he suffers from Alzheimer's. He, mm. he kind of loses his mind, becomes so self-centered and so self-focused. And then he goes on and then it's not until the end of the play that he actually has a moment of clarity. But one of the things that he says um, to Cordelia is basically that he wishes the the plague upon her and, mm. you know, that she gets uh, sores and things like that. And back then that would have been, you know, the it would have been very difficult to hear in the yeah. audience. I mean, you have to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> So full disclosure, full we disclosure. Both have in our I do not have this particular thing memorized. I think I think some of that has to be because we deal with so many scripts that it's like a bunch of dispensable information. <laughs> yeah. And like once we're done with a show, like that following day it's after gone. closing, it's gone. I it cannot tell gone. you two lines from that show. Yeah. That is, I'm I'm a hundred percent with you on that. So King Lear at the very end of the play has this kind of emotional breakdown, which I actually thought I was going to get to this later on, but you know, I just kind of ramble and figure out where I'm going (laughs) as I'm getting there. Um, so his daughter Cordelia dies and King Lear enters howling. And it's very interesting. He's he's written in the script that it, it says howl and he does. He, he's this older man. He enters in this, this, you know, his daughter who loved him with all of her heart and did, you know, everything for him and held him in such high esteem is dead. And it was a lot of, from his choices and he enters howling and he howls, I think it says howl like three times. And then he, he talks about, you know, Cordelia and, and the wrongs that he's done to her. But he says, um, one of his actual lines is poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. How shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, you looped and widowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have tain too little care of this. Which is interesting. Um, and technically the way that I read that was not, you know, really that well. Perfect. But, <laughs> I am a pentameter. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously I wasn't reading it for performance, but it's... It's so interesting that what he ends up talking about is as a ruler, he was so self-absorbed that he was not paying attention to the country around him that he was destroying Hmm. and that his actions so directly affected them in this time of sickness, which I think is so interesting and so applicable to what's going on right now. I mean, to be honest, um, and so it's it's almost like the the king's own misery. It makes him see for the first time that other people's lives have meaning as well, and that there's a lesson for all of us, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and basically, that we should stop listening to numbers and statistics and start actually paying attention to the individual. Yeah. And that's another thing about the plague. And I know I'm going on about this for so long, but you know, Shakespeare's writing these stories about the plague, and in all of his tragedies he never once has a person die 
from the plague. He has people oh, that's true, yeah. murdered and baked into pies and fed to their <laughs> mother, <laughs> which, to be honest, when you read the play, is well-deserved. Right. Andronicus. And then, you know, he, he's just so many numbers. of That was the first one that popped in my head, but so many other numbers of ways. I mean, people have probably died in every way in a Shakespeare play except for the plague. Yeah. And I think it was almost a subject he just didn't want to touch. But I started thinking about that today, and I kind of had this realization of, you know, maybe Shakespeare didn't want to write about the plague because at that time they had mass graves. Yeah. And, you know, we think about now, you think about how horrific it, it is to think about hospitals having those refrigerator trucks yeah. out in front because they didn't have a morgue, and that seems so horrific to us. But it's so, it's disclosed. It's not like there's a, a big pit mm-hmm. right outside the city where everybody can walk by or see or smell. You know, it's it's still very contained and civilized in comparison. Yeah. But, you know, at that time, there were mass graves with that had servants and lords and ladies and moms and dads and families. I mean, everybody was thrown into this one pit that kind of equaled everybody in a way, but is also just really terrible. Oh, yeah. And it it focused death, I think, on such a mass scale. And you looked at it more of, I, I would think that you would look at death then more as a, um, as something that happens on a, that not to like an individual, but to mm-hmm. just a bunch of people. Yeah. And then it's not so much about their story, but it's about the group's story, which right. is the sickness. And so I think that's one of the things that's so brilliant about in Shakespeare's tragedies when they are dealing with this kind of thing is, is that it, it deals with the individual's experience. Yeah. Because, you know, Shakespeare, he, he really was, I think, the first person to really write a, about a person and the way that you feel and mm. the way that you think. I mean, they, they say he was an actor first. He, he's an actor, you know, a, a true director of an actor. Um, and he writes it into his plays, and it's amazing. But I think that he focused so much on the individual experience. I mean, you look at a death scene in Shakespeare, and it's almost comical the way that people make fun of it now. Oh, because yeah. When someone is dying, they talk and 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 talk. You know, it's been made of for been made fun of. But it's interesting because you get that 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 thought process of your last moments. Oh yeah, and you think like your mind has got to be racing. Oh yeah, of course. So you know, he was giving. I think in his way, he was kind of fighting against it by giving voice to an individual Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, every life is important and deserves their time to tell their story. Yeah. And I think that is super beautiful. And that just might be my (laughs) way of trying to make it, you know, either something, I don't know, lofty or something more than what it is, or just to make myself feel better about what was going on. I don't know. You could draw all kinds of academic conclusions to this thing, but I do think that it is such a beautiful way of thinking about it. Him giving voice to an individual Instead of, you know, just a big group lopping everybody into one little thing. Oh, yeah. Like, they died well, at the plague. You know, I've, I've heard that, you know, when, when the number gets to a point where it's, like, unquantifiable, then you you as a person can disconnect from it because it's unfathomable that you could have that that high of a number of death, right? Oh, yeah. And, but, but so, like, I'll compare, like, 9-11. Like, I'm not, I didn't grow up in New York City seeing it. But I could imagine that someone that did, like Shakespeare, seeing this death all around him, seeing this devastation, would affect you in such a profound way oh, yeah. that you thought, no, every story needs to be told. Every single thought needs to be heard. Well, it's got to be, it's got to find its way to wormhole its way into oh, everything yeah. that you're doing. I mean, all of our life experiences in theater and and um, and, and everything that we do. Oh, it for sure. Always you know, you know, from psychology. Oh yeah. Well, even, even cause I approach things from a writer standpoint, because I, that's like one of my favorite pastimes is to write. You can't not help. Um, but have your life experience, whatever that day, you know, if you're having heavy thoughts, then you're writing something heavy that day. And, and it, it's just, you can't not do it. Well, yeah. It's just like yesterday we talked about recording the podcast and I was like, I've had a rough day teaching. Yeah. And this is not going to be a good podcast. <laughs> so we're going to need to move right. this on to some other day. Um, and I do think, you know, one of the other things that uh, one of, you know, he, he's, he, Shakespeare wrote some other plays um, during this time. Uh, 
he did write a lot of sonnets during the plagues too. And I do not know all of those sonnets because I did not go that deep into my research because <laughs> this is not Radiolab. But if it were, I would be able You'd to tell you all, all those things. All of that. I mean, we would just be talking about that very first thing, just really in depth for like an hour. But Shakespeare wrote, um, he also wrote uh, the play that must not be named. Is it bad luck to say it on a podcast? We're not a theater. No. Macbeth. Wanna tr- we'll see what happens. Okay, well, I was going to say, want to try it? And you just. <laughs> I'll just leave. I think it's okay. And everybody should agree that it's okay to say it as long as you're not in a theater. I mean, I've had my own experiences with the Scottish play. But I feel like, you know, for people, you got to at least preface it. We're not in a theater. We're we're okay. We're not rehearsing a show. Yeah. I mean, I've done that play. Probably. I've done that play too many times. And it's just, yeah. Um, So he did the Scottish play. And he, during that time, which is horrifically bloody. Yeah. I mean, oh, for just sure. like yeah. the subject matter is insane. Um, it just is a lot. Um, he wrote Coriolanus, which is also like blood, fight, blood, 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 fight, sadness, blood, fight, death. <laughs> he, um, and then he also wrote, uh, he wrote Timon of Athens, which is another play that I can also see just from the glaze that phased over your eyes when I said time and of Athens, you were like, what? Well, in my mind, I thought, I think it would be funnier if you'd called him Timon of Timon Athens. Timon of Athens, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure somebody went to go buy a ticket at a theater once, and they were like, oh, yes, we're here to see Timon of Athens feeling very fancy. Right. It was like one time I went with somebody <laughs> to go see Eurydice, and they were like, oh, it's, it's Eurydice. And I was like, not today. <laughs> not today, it's not here at DJ. <laughs> like, but if you want to sound fancy, we can go get an espresso and get tickets to here at DJ. <laughs> I guess it's like Othello and Otello. Like yeah. maybe. Eurydice is the opera version of Eurydice. <laughs> I would pay to see that. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, so, uh, Timon of Athens. So he writes Timon of Athens, and if you don't know the story, don't feel bad because not a whole lot of people know the story of Timon of Athens. Basically, to give you another King Lear's <laughs> summation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, summation. I was going to say summarization, and I was like, that's what was going through my brain. That's like, the that's word not... I wish you would have used. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a summarization. I'm going to give you a summation of uh, the time of Athens. So time of Athens, we got Mr. Timon. Um, so he divests himself of all of his worldly possessions, essentially. And he's like, I don't, I don't need all this stuff anymore. And uh, all of his friends kind of fall away, and he's left all alone. And he's being attacked, and... Um, I saw this great production of it one time where they basically put him on a beach and he's all by himself and he gives away his, his last worldly possessions to somebody and then he kind of just drops his robe and he walks off just, you know, naked into yeah. the world at the end of it. And then it went to black. Um, And I think there's something interesting in that. I mean, obviously they were trying to, draw a parallel, like giving him like, ob- he, he literally gave up everything Yeah, and was so much happier that way. But I think that's something that we've kind of all learned throughout this quarantine process and this pandemic is that there are so many things that we do not need. Oh, for sure. And that, you know, letting go of the things that don't bring us happiness and along the way that we do lose some people when we do that. Yep. And you know, that is sad. But it's just one of those things, you know, some people, if they don't bring you happiness or if they're not a part of your success, you, you let them go. Yep. And, and that is, that is something that, you know, even Shakespeare understood and talked about in that time. And I think that that was something, and it might just be my now, you know, quarantined mind thinking about this, but it feels like that is yet another lesson that, you know, a plague or so much loss brings to you is that you then have to be okay with completely letting go of all of these things and realizing that there is happiness sometimes in the simplicity. Oh yeah, for sure. And not that it's, you know, it's not sad whenever you do lose those people, but I feel like if you lose them, they probably weren't meant to be there in the first place. Oh, for, I mean, you know, one of the things 
that's very, very important is to have these healthy boundaries. And when people are not uh, actually adding value to your life and they're just takers, then it's 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 really hard to justifiably quantify them being in your life, period. Yeah. Are you reading before you? No, that's just all I had to say. Okay. I mean, I've been I was talking for a little while there. I was just giving you your time. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> well, uh, in my research, I because I, I knew that you. Oh wait, were, are we are we done now? Am, or, am, you, am I done? Are you done? I mean, I could be done. I guess. Do you have more paper? I mean, I could have paper for days. Yeah, no, I can be done. I can be done. I mean, I think it would be interesting to later, you know, have a little bit more of. I mean, obviously, I love Shakespeare. I want to talk about it all the time. But it would be interesting to talk about that again. Like maybe when we figure out having more than two microphones and we can. Oh, that's true. To have like a yeah, third we can person have to like shoot like up of. Susan come on and actually say more intelligent things because she would know from the very oh, beginning. I would love to sit and just listen to her. It was kind of crazy. When we first worked together, we worked together at Notre Dame Shakespeare Festival, um, which was this. Uh, it's this awesome summer theater festival that uses a lot of people from Chicago in uh, South Bend, Indiana. And um, we were doing uh, Shakespeare. And when you do Shakespeare, a lot of the times they hire somebody like a text coach or yeah, yeah, what yeah. they call a verse nurse. And they just kind of help you along through the text and let you know, like, hey, this back then meant this. And, you know, what if you changed, you know, this into an Alexander line or if you changed the, you know, emphasis on these things. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But they just kind of help you through the text to help inform your character in a way. Mm-hmm. And we worked together on Hamlet for like a week. We were doing Hamlet and Midsummer Night's Dream. And she worked on us with, with both of those shows. And I, I was in a way so frustrated because she taught me so much more than I was paying for in school. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was like, this woman is so amazing. And I was so, th- I mean, and then luckily I was able to become friends with her and work with her professionally later on in life as well, which was really cool and become friends with her. But she was able to teach me so much more in that like week. It just like, it's just so cool. Like, you know, how one person's perspective, even though it might be a little different and you know, I'm sure there are people that are that, that I went to school with that would feel, you know, possibly differently. And we're like, no, I learned so much from these other people, oh, but yeah, yeah. you know, you just, the way that you approach teaching and learning is so different person to person, but we were just able to connect on a way that she opened up Shakespeare for me in such a, an awesome way. So it would be cool to have her on here and actually talk about these things. Cause she is one of those people that can, you know, she doesn't have to have a piece of paper in her hand. <laughs> yeah, she can, she's like, I know this. As she was laughing at me on the phone today. I'm sure she'll be very excited to hear that we spent so much time talking about her in this right? It's like, oh, look at all those gaps in your knowledge. Because <laughs> now I'm going to have to tell her she's going to listen to it and be like, oh, that poor, poor boy. <laughs> he, used to, he used to know so much. I feel like that's the reason you had all those dates and everything. You were there <laughs> like, like, I, want to I be need sure. to know this for sure. <laughs> I have to impress her. <laughs> So what? So your side of things. We were gonna go like to the past, and now we're gonna kind of go to the well. No, it's future. still the past. Uh, oh, we're still in the past. Yeah, we're still in the past. Because we, I really should have paid more attention when we talked about this the first time. Right. I'm just glad that I did. Did I do what I was supposed to do? Yeah, you did. Exactly. Okay, cool. Then I. Well, you know, you expressed that you definitely wanted to talk about the plague and in Shakespeare, but you, yeah. you know, you're a Shakespeare scholar, and I'm I'm not not a scholar. <laughs> well, you're more educated on Shakespeare than I am. Definitely not that. a scholar. But I don't know how much of the uh, theater history you remember or if you've ever taken it because I know oh, you no, I had to take it. it but yeah it's it's definitely it's one of those things where you you know but it's very easy to forget oh yeah well it's very cyclical in in theater history because you know you have these great performances and then there are these like religious oppressions that shut everything down for several years, and then it comes back it's with a interesting flourish. interesting cyclical because the religious theater is what gave us cycle dramas. Exactly. Bum, That's bum, what's bum. crazy. Mardi Gras. Uh, precisely. <laughs> but this is actually during the English Civil War that I had researched. During the English Civil War, um, by an act of parliament, see, they closed... Okay, hold on just one second. I'm going to have a dumb moment. Okay. So we're talking about an English Civil War. Yes. 
Okay, so explain to me what do you know what that is? I don't know what that yeah, okay, is. Okay, during the English Civil War, you had the Puritans, and then you had the Royalists, the people who were siding with all of the the, the royal families and things like oh, that. Oh, okay. That felt like they should be empowered. Then you had the Puritans who were like, mm, no, God is in control. Oh, so they were having an English Civil War, basically. Uh, but they had actually banned theater uh, during the English Civil War because they felt it was unseemly to have. Uh, Theater during these kind of like turbulent times or whatever. Yeah. But really, the reason they banned theater was because the royalists were using playhouses as a meeting house to oh. plan and strategize. How do I not? Did I not know this? This all seems like brand new information. Oh, well, great. Well, we're having a little education <laughs> right now. Um, so actually, what was really cool is the Puritans actually won for a long time. Uh, and so for about 40-ish years... Playhouses were closed, which is why all the the playhouses that Shakespeare's uh, shows were done in kind of fell to pieces because they were illegal to even be in. Oh, wait. So this was all happening around in Shakespeare's time. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Oh, okay. But uh, it wasn't until the the, something called the Interregnum, which I don't know if I'm even saying that. uh, That sounds real bad whatever that Either is way, it, it, i don't want to be diagnosed with whatever it was that you exactly just said. i can't imagine what the I've medical the application in a, in is interregnum <laughs> um but you, you wouldn't know, believe the price of the cream for my interregnum <laughs> <laughs> when the puritans actually lost power though and the royalists restored the monarchy the first thing that they did was restore going to the playhouses and they rebuilt the playhouses and had all kinds of new theater and they had like wit theater and things like that uh, after that. So that, that is 40 years of no theater in, in Europe at an official playhouse. Anyway, I'm sure, you know, like you had mentioned about Shakespeare that it so was happening illegally. Is this when, is this when bear baiting and those kind of things were happening? Like they had, you know, so there, you know, in the time when, uh, theater was banned because of religious purposes. I know that um, because this has happened quite a few times throughout history, but yes. there was a time where, you know, theater was banned during Shakespeare's time. And um, it was uh, before uh, Elizabeth took power. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Was that like an Edward or something? Or Henry or Someone. Jerry? Jerry. King Jerry was like <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> That would not be a very strong name. <laughs> I'm King Jerry. I'm King Jerry, and I'm here to, you know, do whatever kings do. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they they had the all of the all of the theaters were turning into bear baiting uh, yeah. pits, and that was one of the reasons oh, why yes, Shakespeare. Yes, yes, yes. And then when they were doing Winter's Tale, you know, at the end of Winter's Tale, they have the uh, um, it says it says exeunt, it says exit, pursued by a bear, and it's because there's an actual receipt. From uh, they're called the Chamber Chamberlain's Men um, by Shakespeare's you know the actors like B- Richard Burbage and all those people went out and they bought an old bear yeah that had no teeth and they like brought it back and they were like how do we use this it was like oh well we could you know just bring it on for the end of the show and it could chase I don't know I think it's Leonidas they could chase him off stage yeah. that'd be great um, there are so many cool like rock star stories about Shakespeare and his, his like band of actors. Right. Like where the globe, when they, whenever they, they were renting their theater and the landlord raised the rent on them and they were like, no, we're not paying that. And they, he was like, yeah, you're paying it or you're leaving. And so they all drank a lot and they totally dismantled the entire building. Did you know that? Yeah. They took yeah, it's crazy. They took it a piece, they took every single piece of it and brought it across the River Thames and rebuilt it. Yep. And we're like, what are you gonna do about that? Like that's not insane. on your property. Not on your property. It's all your stuff, but it's not on your property right. anymore. It's like that's crazy. Sorry. So you're talking about the no, period. No, but yeah. I'm sure all of this you'll have to you know. Oh well, you know, but the the other thing um that I wanted to talk about was uh, during the late 1800s, I believe it was. You ever heard of something called The Passing Show? No. The Passing Show. Great. Here's another uh, learning moment for you. Man, this is crazy. Very excited for you. <laughs> so uh, back in the late 1800s, like there was like a huge ep- economic depression before the Great Depression. Um, and theaters were closing all over the place. And they didn't know what to do. So this one guy, I want to say his name was George Letterer, I believe his name was. He took a, he made a review of all the shows that had happened that season at this one theater house. 
If you could just silence that, that'd be great. Was that me? Yes, it was. That's you. not even my tone. I don't know what to tell you. To be man. fair, that's the guy who records our intro and outro that just texted me. So. Oh, well, <laughs> he, 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 he's viably uh, At least it's, it's business. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, this guy, George Letterer, basically what he did was he made the very first ever review. What? Yes. It was like 1894, called The Passing Show. So this is a story about the first theater critic. Not necessarily. <laughs> the, well, the, the, the That's whole, too lofty a term is what yeah, you said. Yeah, the, the whole theater uh, structure was basically falling apart and it was failing because of the economic downturn. Nobody was buying tickets to go see the show. But for less money, he did a review of all the shows and made a spoof of everything that had happened that previous season. Oh, I thought you were talking about like a theater review, like you write No, 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 paper. no, no, like an actual performance oh, review. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, is interesting because because of that, it gives way to like Second City and Saturday Night Live and the Carol Burnett show and things like that. And it's why we have a Broadway review today. That is crazy. Which is crazy to me because theater closing has always led to innovation oh, yeah. within the theater, which is very exciting because I know for you and I personally, uh, man, well, I'm, just gonna think- take a, I'm just going to take a stop right there. I'm going to turn because what I really think about is that first audience and that first performance. Yeah, when you When we back. get back, when yeah. everybody gets back. Those first audiences are going to get this just electric show. Well, yeah, and you know what is the show too? Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of weight there. You know, it's interesting because so much of like what we were talking about, so much of the um, the turns in theater, the innovations in theater, and the new things that were brought on, you know, Renaissance or whatever. Oh yeah, has been from some form of oppression or you know like a massive sickness like the You're plague. Right. So. I think about is what is going to be the new thing? Oh yeah. Because there's always something that comes out of it. So, you know, for us, it's obviously us is, is doing this podcast. This is the new thing <laughs> right. for us. Yeah. Right. Um, but what is going to be the new art form? You know, it's, it, I don't think that it is zoomsical, the musical. No, I don't think that that's the new not. art form. It's definitely not <laughs> something that I want to subscribe to in any way. Um, personally. Um, but it is kind of amazing and maybe it's not going to be as impressive of a turn, as innovative as a turn, because we have so much technology that we're not just all sitting around in silence thinking. Yeah. You know, I think that is a huge, a huge thing that I don't want to say it's like a, a thing that they had a benefit that they had over us because technology is obviously a huge benefit oh, yeah. for us. But I do think that in a way it makes us a little lazy mm-hmm. because you don't have to be as innovative. True. Because, you know, I maybe I can't perform the show, but, you know, maybe I could do a reading of it over Zoom and just yeah. move on yeah. and not have to think about, of a, a you know, what happens whenever we go back. I can just do this. So I know this is maybe the second l- longest break I've ever had from theater. And... Th- before you had come back, I think the longest I'd not done it because I'd had about a year and a half break. Uh, some life circumstances had happened and I was like really in this like depressed state. But um, in doing that show, it was my first time back on stage in about a year and a half. And and up to that point, I'd really thought I'm probably never going to be on stage again. Maybe like my theater career is over. I've moved on to another part of my life. And being in like a low point and you think I just exist, uh, is really hard. But in doing that show, there I was with this community of people Mm -hmm. again, with this group of people who really love me. And it was, and it was so, and you play a vital part. Amazing. Yeah. And, and, and as a result of that, just to show like these breaks from theater and how it changes you, as a result of that and all these people that I did this show with, I have done my very best to make sure everything I do is fun yeah, on stage and off stage. And I know like people do shows for a lot of reasons like you, I know want to make, you know, people are spending their hard earned cash to come and see this show mm-hmm. and you want to make sure that their two hours are worthwhile. 
You want to make sure that they, they, that they get this great performance. And I know that there's some other business aspects to it, but that, that I know that ultimately what you care about is the art form. Yeah. And, and, and I know a lot of people are on stage doing this because maybe they want to impress their friends or impress their uh, partners or spouses Bucket and things list. like that. Yeah. But I think the thing that sticks out for me is that anytime I'm on stage with people and I've done a lot of soul searching to get to this point, it's like, they're really doing it for me mm-hmm. because having that community, having that camaraderie, and with the exception of maybe one show I've done since then, have I always felt that and always done my best to to really have that. Yeah. To make it fun, to make everyone feel as loved as they make me feel loved. And I just I just enjoy that aspect. And I'm excited to see what this break does for me personally and for what we do going forward. Cause Oh my God, I'm so excited about it. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing that comes out of this is learning the importance of what we do Yeah, and how it's, you know, it's not just for, for us, it's for everybody. You know, that was one of the things right after all these, you know, um, we're learning about, uh, the, the plagues and things and, and actually doing some research that was the first thing that gets brought back is the arts. Yeah. And you think Shakespeare, this was one thing, that's what I forgot to say. Shakespeare had the option to leave London where there he's in the epicenter of this, you know, virus, this, this plague that's going around. And he didn't, he yeah. did not leave. And he didn't leave because he knew that when this was done, that the people would need the arts to uh, be able to understand, to help them understand what just happened to them. And that is so amazing. Yeah. Because it's it just shows you, even back then, the power in performance. And it honestly helps people think and feel and understand how they think and feel. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think it's definitely, you know, for, for you and I, it's, I don't, I don't think that either of us do this for purely selfish reasons. Yeah. Um, I think that that is one of the reasons why you and I became such fast friends is that we understand that, you know, this is something that's greater than you or I, and that it it is important. And it's not something that should just be reserved for major cities, Yeah, you know, and that, you know, that smaller cities and, you know, that they need the help to be able to understand what's going on around them, which is why before all of this happened, before the, the plague hit, we were, I know we were both so excited because we were, we had just did, uh, the reading of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, oh man. And yeah, it was, the table read was incredible. It was incredible. I mean, you know, a lot of times people say this in theater, they say, you know, well, we had the perfect group of people at the perfect time. Yeah. And I think that does happen sometimes. Oh, for sure. I have been there when it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And where we might've said that it had, just because it might make us feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> but I mean, you know, just like anything else, there are some things that work and there are some things that kind of work. Yeah. And when they really work, oh man, it's, it's amazing. Oh, for sure. And you know, something, you know, just getting through and like making something and producing something and, and it is a solid piece of work is one thing. And that is great. But then working on something as an actor or as a producer or as a director stage manager, anything, mm-hmm. props person, um, wardrobe, doesn't matter. I mean, if you're a part of a process where you have, you, you truly have all the right people that needed to be there and you're producing something at a time that needs to be produced. Yep. And everyone is equally invested in creating the same outcome. You know, it's just... After after that read through, and then we had come home. It was so heartbreaking to find out that you know the possibility was going to be there that we weren't going to actually be able to perform it. And I remember oh, yeah. being there and setting up the tables and stuff, and thinking, you know, I know a lot of people aren't taking this the coronavirus seriously, mm-hmm. but I wonder if it's actually going to come over here and be a big thing because I think only like seven people might have had it in Seattle or something yeah. at that point. And it, and I might be wrong on that, but. Um, it just didn't seem like it was going to be so widespread at the time in my mind. Yeah. And, you know, that week we canceled our first rehearsals and that was just kind of like, it's okay, we're going to come back. And then after that, I, 
I realized that we were not going to be doing this right. show. <laughs> and, um, and that was really hard. Mm-hmm. It was very hard. And, and I, I know it's not just because I was sad that we didn't get the chance to do this show. It's because I was so excited for the audience experience. Oh, yeah. Because I just knew that sitting, sitting back and listening to an audience be able to, I mean, if I could, I wish that I would have had the hindsight just to record the stage reading mm. or, or just whenever we did the table read, I mean, not the stage reading, but the table read of, um, of everybody in the room because it was just so magical and it was so nice and full and developed. I mean, everybody's characters were all there and it was just firing. All pistons were firing at full yep. speed and it was beautiful. And I think about, you know, where our country is at the moment and how important that particular show is, not only to our, um, our history, mm-hmm. um, but, but how, you know, r- it resonates right now with what the country is going through and, and what a great way to educate people and, you know, hearing different sides of the story and not just relying on your side. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, I, I can't wait. Cause I think about the first show whenever we come back. Um, and, and I think about that possibility of this being the first show and it, it is, it's huge. Yeah. I just, it, it, but I, I'd like in my mind, I've got to have all those same people. Oh, yeah. And I'm so worried that something's going to happen and those right. people aren't going to be there anymore. But I don't know. I'm sure that you were kind of feeling along the same lines. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was so incredibly moved at the... Well, at the table read, people were making fun of us because we were both crying. Oh, like, yeah. You don't understand. We I mean, I cried quite a bit. For so long. <laughs> and now to hear it and you guys are like doing it so well. Uh, but well, you do so much you know, work beforehand. Yeah. And so we had gotten to that point and it was like, Oh, you know I mean? Rehearsals are some of my favorite parts of it, or at least I should say rehearsals can be some of my favorite yeah, times. <laughs> <laughs> and I just saw the possibility for such great work to happen. And yeah. I was like, man, this is going to be a killer rehearsal process Yep, with some amazing people. Oh, that was hard to, that was hard not to, to get, I guess that's selfish of me. It was like seeing a present Christmas morning that you really want. And then somebody takes that present away and says, nah, you know, it's, it's this hope is deferred kind of thing where it's like, that's one of the hardest things because like you said, we put so much work into it. I mean, we had the lights down, we had the stage down, we had pretty much all we needed to do was have the actors learn their lines at that point. And it was Man, I was so ready for it, and and I think you're right. I I hope everybody we have the same exact cast because it was so yeah. magnetic. Yeah, and everybody liked each other, which is something that people uh, underestimate. Oh, for sure, yeah. Because <laughs> I've I've done some shows where you're like, you know, three of these people could really leave, and we yep. would all collectively be okay. Yep. Well, it's like it's why you see people working together all the time, and why yeah. For instance, Adam Sandler brings the same people on every film that he works with. It's like because he wants to work with people that he likes. Of course. <laughs> you know, working as a as a professional actor and working in the in the world of theater as far as a business that you're doing like a 9 to 5 job, when you're in the room behind the table and people are casting, you know, that's one of the most stressful things an actor yeah. is to go into uh, any kind of audition setting. But for me, whenever I've got the opportunity to actually go to the other side of the table and sit there and watch auditions and then be a part of the conversation of who to cast and that kind of a thing, you realize that it's not so much about, oh, that person's super talented. I have seen the most incredible people audition and get passed over Mm -hmm. for a great personality and somebody that you enjoy being around. And um, this director that really kind of shaped the way that I, I direct today. It was actually the person who wrote Christmas Carol. And I, I talk about him a lot to a lot of people who've worked with, with our company, but, um, but David, uh, David Bell always talks about how, you know, it, you cast the person and that I think is the most important thing. Yeah. You're casting the person, you're casting somebody you want to be around that you want to have a beer with that yep. you like, that is who you want to, put in your show because in the end if you're not having a good time 
then your cast is not going to be there. He also said you have to feed your actors. Yeah, right. (laughs) Which was a really big thing. Which is back to my philosophy about trying to make everyone feel happy and loved and to have a good time because I think happiness is crazy infectious. Oh, yeah. And condescension is crazy poisonous. Yeah, being a part of a cast where there is some negative energy, and I have seen it. I mean, I've worked with directors, and it's not all the time because in general, I think where we work and what we do that, you know, people are happy to be there and yeah. to have this job because it is something that you have to be passionate about and to love to take it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some egos in the room every once in a while. <laughs> and sure. I have, I have been a part of shows and seen directors just tear people apart for no reason, mm-hmm. just because they, you know, it's, it's like what they used to talk about. Who's it? like Bob Fosse or somebody used to always hire somebody to fire on the first day in front of everybody so that they would all know that their job is expendable. Yeah. It's that kind of thing that I just don't believe in. Um, I just don't buy into it. I, I've, I've seen people just like, there was this midsummer where this girl was playing Helena and this guy, this director just did not like her for whatever reason. And he broke her down on stage repeatedly in front of people. And Mm. when she eventually got to, you know, and this was a professional actor, you know, eventually got to the point of just, she just did not care anymore. She did not want to perform. She didn't want to be there. She, um, she didn't want to give anything to the role because at that point it was just something that she felt like she had to get through. And, being somebody that that was watching this happen, it is also miserable, and you lose respect for your director. Oh yeah, that's like uh, uh, that podcast that we were listening to about the guy who did the the role of Joel in in the video game The Last of Us. Oh yeah, and how they redid that scene, you know, fourteen times before mm-hmm. the director came up to him and he's like, "Look, I need you to not be just broken." He's like, well, "I don't know what you're talking about because I'm supposed to be this broken man at this point." He's like, "Yes." But what I need you to get through is being compromising to to be angry, then to be upset, and then to be broken. I need you to hit yeah. all of the beats. And then the actor just went, oh, my God, this is the greatest director I've ever worked with in my life. I thought he was trying to tear me down, but he <laughs> Which was trying to build me up. Which is hard to say as an actor. Oh, for to sure. To be like, we've been through this 14 times and i got to do it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's for a video game? Right. <laughs> Um, I mean, an amazing video game. Oh, yeah. Critically acclaimed. Some of the best uh, Critically acclaimed. Yeah. Shakespeare's video game. But um, all that to say, we're running out of time. Oh. Yeah. Oh, no. Just that quick, for sure. Like Any a, last closing like thoughts? Like putting me to bed with a wet blanket. Did that do right, it for well, you? Well, you made it weird again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone, um, for listening. I guess, I guess, you know, last things to say. Um, what... Did we decide what we're going to talk about next time? Ooh. How about, on the spot, um, there's, there's when things. a show is just a job, and when do you give it your all? Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's way that's more kind personal. Of, like kind of what we were talking about just then. That's true. With, you know, we Eleanor, but our... we can definitely add in some. I've got plenty of stories yep. about that situation. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that sounds interesting. Well, I hope that everybody enjoyed their Shakespeare lesson. I know that I enjoyed feeling very dumb when you were talking about the Puritans. And I'm sure that when this is all done, I'll look back on it and be like, oh, no. <laughs> this hey, was can a Can you edit out uh, me talking? Can you edit my portion of the show? <laughs> I'll just be there going, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right, cool. Right. Well, thanks, everyone. This has been uh, Scene Partners. And that was Chris. And that was Cody. Cody.